Hi, and welcome to Beyond Madness from me, Christopher Paul Sabo. As a psychiatrist, I host conversations about issues emanating from psychiatry that impact society, as well as discuss societal issues that have potential implications for mental health and emotional well-being. My guests include thought leaders from both within the discipline of psychiatry and beyond. Beyond Madness is brought to you in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave. Inspiring communities, one pharmacy at a time. So, to start today's episode, I'm going to quote from the opening lines of correspondence published in The Lancet in 2018. Imagine a condition that makes a person irritable, depressed, and self-centered, and is associated with a 26% increase in the risk of premature mortality. Imagine, too, that in industrialized countries, around a third of people are affected by this condition, with one person in 12 affected severely, and that these proportions are increasing. Income, education, sex, and ethnicity are not protective, and the condition is contagious. The effects of the condition are not attributable to some peculiarity of the character of a subset of individuals. They are a result of the condition affecting ordinary people. Such a condition exists. Loneliness. It's quite a dramatic quote to introduce today's episode entitled Loneliness, and we are joined by Dorianne Wheel and Leanne Lurie to discuss this issue. Dorianne is a clinical psychologist, a media veteran as Dr. D, and a regular guest on the podcast. And recently, and I might ask you a bit more about this, you could have heard her talk, if you were in Tanzania, on the consummate couple, the benefits of a fulfilling relationship. I found that very interesting. Leanne is a clinical psychologist too. She's in private practice in Johannesburg. She has a broad range of clinical interests. She's no stranger to the media, as well as being involved with the South African Depression and Anxiety Group, SADAG, as an affiliate since 2002, when she started as a telephonic counselor. So, Dori and Leanne, welcome to today's episode of Beyond Madness. And I'm going to start out with an obvious question. What is loneliness? Dori? Leanne? It's a tough question, actually. It's a very nuanced question. Yes, I think it is a nuanced question. I mean, I can give you a definition, but I wanted to hear what you had to say first. The first thing that comes into my mind when you ask that is feeling disconnected from other people um, and not out of choice. Yes, I think that that kind of captures an element of it for sure. Leanne, what were you going to say? There are many levels to it. Yes. And my definition of loneliness versus somebody else's yes. may be very different. Fair enough. And it, it covers a broad range of emotions from anger to resentment to grief to, as Dari said, that feeling of being disconnected. Yes. But at the same time, it's not only an emotional phenomenon, an emotional sensation. Mm. It's also physical. Right. You feel it in the gut. Yes. You feel it in the heart. You can feel it on your skin. Well, I do think social isolation and, and, and especially social exclusion has a biological basis, actually, which I find quite interesting because in a much earlier podcast, we were looking at physical pain versus emotional pain. And in fact, similar areas of the brain light up. Certainly when you're talking about social exclusion versus physical pain. So that kind of pain is actually very real. We kind of think of it as, as, as something very vague and nebulous, but actually it's, 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 it's a real pain. So Cacioppo, there's two of them, Cacioppo and Cacioppo, they were the uh, ones who I was quoting in the introduction from 2018. 
They define it as a unique condition where an individual perceives him or herself to be socially isolated even when among people. So that sense of disconnection and that isolation even when amongst people I think is, 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 is very uh, uh, powerful. And, you know, for me it's, it's how do we distinguish between loneliness, feeling lonely, and being alone? Because I think, you know, all of these things could be sort of conflated into one concept, but I do think they're, they're a little bit different, actually, because mm. any one of us can be alone at any time. Mm. I can feel lonely at a particular moment. I don't necessarily suffer from loneliness. And they're calling it a condition, which is quite interesting, because certainly in terms of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, 5TR, there's a text revision, um, there's no mention. Actually, mm-hmm. and yet the way it would be framed or, or, or described initially, it's pretty pervasive. Mm-hmm. Actually, so Dori. Yeah, I think that this, um, in terms of the three things that you've said, you can choose to be alone, right? And um, therefore, it's it 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 falls to quite a large extent under your control. Yes, a condition of loneliness, I think, is pervasive. Mm. And extends to lots of situations. Right. Um, so I think, you know, in terms of the difference is that, mm. and the feeling of loneliness or disconnect isn't actually a feeling. It's condition, as you're talking about, mm. that would result in certain feelings. Some of them that you spoke about. Yes. You can be frustrated. You can be depressed. You can be um, anxious right. as a result of it because of being disconnected. So it speaks to the fact that certainly it's nothing that is egocentric. In other words, it's nothing that is part of you that you choose. It's something that is causing distress, both on a physical and psychological level. And usually with that would be a sense of helplessness Mm -hmm. to be able to influence it in the way that you would like. I think that's very important. And I think the issue of distress comes into it. Certainly, I mean, if you choose to be alone, you get people who are hermetic by nature, Mm -hmm. They don't have a concern being alone. They're actually, mm. they're actually happier being alone. They don't want people around them. So I think the issue of choice is very important and the extent to which you can influence your circumstances Absolutely. and you would wish them to be different. Leanne? I think also, I think loneliness is very often equated with a sense of being misunderstood. Right. And so I think that very often if you are turned like internally inward and your distress is so all encompassing, you feel, as Laurie said, you feel completely disconnected from the world, but you also don't know if anyone is capable of understanding your set of circumstances. And then in turn, you end up isolating yourself. And feeling you know, isolated because you don't isolated. feel understood. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I think that that definition that I, that I mentioned captures a lot of what you have been talking about because they were saying, Cacioppo and Cacioppo, it's a husband and wife. I think one of them is now deceased. You know, they said poor social skills, introversion, depression, subjective social isolation. They say, no, no, th- that's not loneliness. What we're talking about is more loneliness. And, and, and the thing for me, as I started sort of reading more deeply into the subject, is the extent to which governments around the world mm. are picking up on loneliness. I, I, I was actually quite Taken aback because I've never really thought of it as a, a government priority or a mm. government agenda. So I'm just going to list some of the countries mm. where, for example, in the UK, uh, back in 2018, mm. a lady called Tracy Crouch, she was a minister in Theresa May's cabinet. She was also given the portfolio of Minister for Loneliness. Mm. And I think at the time when I'd encountered that, it was almost like, is, is this a joke? Mm. Is this a real ministry? But then you start looking at 
some of the motivation behind it. And, you know, figures of 20% of adults feel lonely. And they're talking about the cost to employers and the health system of something like mm-hmm. 3.5 billion mm-hmm. pounds per year. And suddenly you're saying, okay, so there's something going on here, which they're looking at. Then you go to Japan, 2020, another minister for loneliness, Tetsushi Sakamoto. There they're talking about 40% of adults feeling lonely. Then you move to Russia, October 2022. There's a proposal to create an agency for loneliness, again, because of research that shows a significant percentage of people over the age of 14 feel lonely. Here they quoted 43%. Australia, Victoria State, November 2021, proposing that that state appoints a minister for loneliness. And they start talking about the 2018 loneliness report, one in four are lonely, 30% rarely or never feel part of a group of friends, 22% rarely or never feel they have someone to talk to. And then the 2019 Young Australians Loneliness Survey, more than 50% felt lonely sometimes or always. Mm -hmm. Suddenly the governments are getting involved. Look, I don't see it happening here at this point, but the truth of the matter is, there is a worldwide movement towards actually dealing with this. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, are we overreacting or is this something really that we need no, to be looking at? I don't think that we're overreacting at all. Mm. I mean, listening to that, I quite applaud what you said. And I think that people are understanding that human beings are wired for connection. Right. Mm-hmm. And that what is happening in the world today and in all of those countries today is it because of the emphasis on many areas of our lives in terms of what success, production, the tech um, era, the pace and so on. It has influenced the opportunity for connection right. and um, for love, for fulfilling that kind of need. And we've already mentioned some of the real detrimental effects of it. So we know that people, if you look at Harvard's longitudinal study, right. the, 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 the greatest core with, um, influencer of happiness is connection with other people. Mm-hmm. So it's not only not being happy. People who are in connected relationships live longer. Yes. They actually get um, less memory loss. They all the they are more productive. And one thing that I was surprised about is that they earn more in their if they in relationships. You see books all over the show, Love and Survival. Mm. By Dean Ornish, who used to be the Dean of Medicine at um the University of California, um in Irvine, whose, it was called Love and Survival, the Scientific Basis for the Healing Power of Intimacy, which showed that people who, um, who are in relationships, not necessarily romantic relationships, mm-hmm. but who feel in connected relationships get sick more often and get better more quickly. And he was quite criticized actually because he is a cardiologist right. by training and responsible, for, quite responsible for the development of the stent. And a lot of his colleagues at the time thought this was sort of woo woo stuff. Yes. You know, soft stuff. But when one looks at the effects of it, both psychologically and physically, as we've been talking about, it is something that the government should focus on. Well, you see, so, you, you're bringing into play something that the World Health Organization has looked at and they've said, that 2021 to 2030, there's a policy window to address social isolation and loneliness. And this is a statement issued by the director, Etienne Krug, Dr. Etienne Krug. And he is director of the Department of Social Determinants of Health. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially what we're coming to, of the social determinants of health. So sorry, I jumped in there, Dory, no, but no. I had to just, because as you were talking about it, it was like, yes, social determinants of health. And I mean, we've had a 
an earlier podcast on social determinants of health, specifically looking at poverty and mental health. Mm. But now we're adding something else in. Leanne and then Dori can jump in again. So if we ground part of this discussion within a South African context, I think it's safe to say that a fair amount of of us – carry some kind of trauma, whether it's vicarious or whether we've actually experienced it ourselves. Yes. And I think that we then choose isolation as a way of guarding ourselves against future trauma. Mm-hmm. But in the process, we also land up cutting ourselves off from other people or we we fail to see the otherness in somebody. So you can be driving at the robot and there's somebody that's begging yes. and you'll just shake your head, but you don't want to make eye contact mm. because perhaps you may actually see part of yourself that resonates. Sure. And I think that that kind of defensiveness promotes a certain individualistic uh, uh, element yes. to one's existence, which could be a stepping stone towards more than that. Sure. So, Dory? Yeah, I just think that this opens up something that's really huge because mm. what you were saying in the beginning is that the fear of not being understood, mm. you know, I think that there's also the other part of the fear of being understood exactly. where people are feeling not worthy enough of love and belonging. Mm. When you feel not worthy enough of love and belonging, you feel shame. And when you feel the shame, you want to protect, you want to hide yourself. And there's a, there, there's an inability to show yourself because you think that that kind of vulnerability is weakness. Mm. You don't understand the courage of vulnerability, mm. what it takes to be emotionally exposed, but you need that emotional exposure for connection. Mm. If you don't show any of that side of yourself, connections are quite superficial. Mm. So if you feel a fear of a vulnerability because of shame and not being worthy, you're going to hide yourself. So what if they do see who I really am? Mm. You know, what if they get to know there's part of that mm. as well? And very often you will hide behind the guise of, of being a rescuer, of being a helper. I mean, yes. how many of our clients or patients have sat with us and said, but nobody understands me. Nobody mm-hmm. helps me. I'm always in the helping role. Right. And the question that you pose back is, but does anyone know that you actually need and they very often catch somebody off guard. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, we say that what is the bravest thing you could ever say? One of the bravest words you could ever say, ever, and it's help. Mm. You know, the bravest things that you could, and people can't hear what you don't say. No, that's true. Can they? That is true. <laughs> yeah. and, and I think this whole issue of vulnerability, which people are very reluctant to expose, mm. because I think these sort of other side or the flip side of the coin is robustness. You know, I think in order to be vulnerable, you have to be fairly robust so that you accept that in revealing vulnerability, it may be exploited. Mm. It might not be understood. It might be misunderstood. Mm. And you have to be able to contend with that because it's not necessarily rejection. Mm. And I think that, you know, where one doesn't necessarily have that psychological robustness, I think it's quite difficult to actually make yourself vulnerable. And ultimately, I think if you don't make yourself vulnerable, there's no intimacy. Mm-hmm. And, I'm, I, I, and I'm not speaking. No. I'm not speaking sexual here. No. I mean, there's Con- no emotional depth of connection. Emotional. Connection. Yeah. Yeah. Connection. Mm-hmm. And you see that often in parent-child relationships. Yes. For example. I think also. I think very often we make the the feeling of whether we feel lonely or connected. Contingent on the response we may get from others. Yes. So that locus of control is completely external. Right. 
as opposed to mm-hmm. actually valuing the process of speaking our truth. Well, this comes to the issue of just being authentic, right? Yeah. And mm-hmm. I think that Gabor Mate speaks a lot about oh. that in his book, mm-hmm. uh, The Myth of Normal. Mm-hmm. He speaks about the authentic individual. Mm-hmm. But by the same token, authenticity also can place you outside of the loop and therefore exclude you. Yes. So in terms of being who you are, you have to be robust enough to accept that it may not accord with what other people's expectations well, are. you know, in that, I mean, he talks about authenticity versus adaptation right. and that when you're growing up, you learn the danger of authenticity because it's not being accepted. Mm. So your needs weren't heard, you were dissed, they weren't met or whatever. You learn a pattern of behavior that you internalize and serves you well and it's adaptation versus authenticity. But of course, adaptation is to do with maybe self protection when you were very young but might not exist now so i've found and i'd love to hear what you think that when you do take the risk of vulnerability and you're more authentic most of the time you there's no guarantee you might absolutely get you know a, a, a very negative response or a frightened response or whatever but most of the time, you get a better response. So if I had said to you something that you just spoke about now, yes, I did do this, uh, a lot of programs, and that was one of them in Tanzania. If I had to tell you that before I left for that, I was so anxious hmm. being authentic. I was as anxious as anything because I was the only resource there. People were met, There were flights. There was cost in terms of hotel. There was expectations. I felt overwhelmingly responsible. And I had fears of what happens if I don't meet their expectations or it doesn't work out as well. Now, you know, I'm not telling you this. And Mm. I can say to you, does that make you feel more positively disposed Towards towards me? Or does it say, what kind of a guest have I got sitting in my studio who gets anxious after all these years of doing public speaking? I think it's, it, it speaks to a certain realistic appraisal of what could happen. And I think that any public speaker has to have a, a measure of humility mm. insofar as you're exposing yourself. You're a performer, actually. You're mm. on stage. Mm. And there are going to be all kinds of expectations. So you need to be able to go there. Be your authentic self. You don't necessarily go there to pander to an audience. You go there to represent who you are and what Mm. you think. Mm. And you do make yourself vulnerable. But what I'm saying is that does it make you feel that you um, more connected – Because we're saying that vulnerability might make people feel disconnected, especially authentic vulnerability. Or do you say, geez, thank goodness she's a member of the human race too. The latter. The The latter, latter. exactly. No, absolutely. And that's most of the time. I think it makes me feel much more Mm. connected where I say, Mm. well, she's honest. Mm. And you see, I think that And gives you permission. Sure. Mm. Because we all then start to reveal the fact that, well, you know, under those circumstances, I can share your feelings because this is what happened to me. And suddenly – There's a connection. And again, it's all coming back to connectedness. But it also very often depends on context and also Mm. on the role that you as an individual play in a particular system. I suppose so. And I think that even if you have a leadership role, you still have to accept that you don't have all the answers. You don't know everything. You don't always get it right. And I think to be able to acknowledge that doesn't make you less of a leader. It doesn't, but it's whether the system can accept that, that you are that you are human and that those roles can actually shift interchangeably. Yes, no, and I think there are times where you take guidance. 
Mm. even as a leader. Mm. And I think at the end of the day, that is the mark of leadership where you're mm. able to listen 100%. and to be, and, mm. and to be available. Be, but ultimately, you are able to say, but the buck stops with me. Mm-hmm. So whatever decision is taken, because now we're getting into the discussion of leadership and you say, what's the connection between leadership and loneliness? Yeah. But leadership is a very lonely place. Mm-hmm. And I remember uh, uh, when I was in matric, my person who sat next door to me in the next seat said, uh, it's very lonely at the top, but it's very crowded at the bottom. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the truth is it is lonely at the top. And, you know, when you speak about loneliness, there is a loneliness in leadership mm. because who does the leader turn to? Who do they make themselves vulnerable to? So we're speaking about loneliness in a very sort of general societal context amongst individuals. But there are specific situations where one feels lonely, mm-hmm. like when you're up on that stage mm-hmm. and you're giving your talk and you're thinking, geez, how is it being experienced? What are they thinking? You know, and you're kind of waiting for the Q&A and you're looking at the audience and there's that one person who's just not interested. Mm-hmm. And that's the one person you're going to focus on because mm-hmm. you're going to think, what the hell's wrong with me? As opposed to what's going on with them. Because like the, mm-hmm. like the baby with a mother, you want a mirror of your emotional experience. Fair enough. To, exactly. know, to know that you matter, to know that you're making an impact on the world and on somebody else. And that is human nature, right? Because you're going to focus on that one person who's busy on their cell phone and who seems to be having a hell of a good time concentrating on everything but you. Never mind the fact that everybody else. Mm-hmm. So how did it go, that mm-hmm. talk, Dory? Mm-hmm. Actually, it went very well. Yeah. You know, and I'm listening to this because I kind of felt from the beginning, you know, sometimes you do feel in the zone. It was, and I did a lot of other forums too, for people who are CEOs. Right. And interestingly enough, when you get a group of people who don't, you know, who can't do this kind of openness and vulnerability with their board of directors, sometimes even with their families, sometimes because they've been groomed to take over family business. But you create the kind of feeling of enough containment and in an atmosphere of confidentiality and trust where there's openness and people, you know, if you get someone who says, you know, all I really want is my dad to say, I'm proud of you, my boy. Mm. That validation, validation and yeah. affirmation. And you understand, sure, that feelings don't grow up. They just get housed in bigger bodies. Mm. And we get, we get more and more adept at putting veils on them. Mm. And therefore more and more disconnected in no, the world. And I think that's, that's, that, that's very profound because I, I have in recent years come across older Adults who've expressed things to me where I think, goodness, at your age, is that still an issue for you? What your mother thought or what your father thought? Mm-hmm. And, and you're talking about people in their seventies mm-hmm. and eighties who are making these kind of comments. And, and I thought, wow, these things really kind of cut deep and they don't go. You just, as you say, you just grow up, but they're still with mm-hmm. you actually. So I, I think this whole issue of, of success. And loneliness is actually a very interesting Mm. one because I think that sometimes the more successful you are, the more lonely you become Mm. because at the end of the day, who do you trust? Who is there for you as a person versus what they can get from you and what it means to be associated with you? That's just a personal reflection, and I'm not saying it's about me because I'm not at that level. No, but it can generate paranoia. Yeah. Correct. And, and isolation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think if we use the traditional ways of evaluating success, which really were, and I say were because I hope they are changing and much more malleable now, but they were to do with power, money, and status. Right. Mm-hmm. And that if you had power, money, or status – all three, but one even, perhaps you had status as a being a very well-known authority or an author or professor, maybe you didn't have as much money, but power, money or status. 
then I think that you, the, the relationship between defining yourself like that and you say, now that I've done everything I thought I ought to have done or I should have done based on external and economic criteria, how come I don't feel fulfilled? Mm. I thought by now I ticked all the boxes. Yes. And in fact, there is loneliness and isolation. Yes. And then people are saying, you know what, let's move from success to significance because that's more to do with fulfillment. Mm. I want to feel that I'm more and after the so-called to whom to themselves at first and to say whatever i've been climbing to the top of the ladder but maybe it was the wrong ladder yeah that just reminds me of a beautiful quote and it says it's better to travel hopefully than to arrive explain your thoughts because that's an interesting one Mm. that it's better to engage like in that process yes. of, of becoming, of, of actualizing, than actually to arrive at what is defined as the end of that. Yes. Because what then? And who am I now? And am I going to be defined by that one experience? What's left? Well, I think that's true. And isn't there a poem? Why do I think of a poem called, and the word Ithaka comes to mind, where I think that the poet is talking about the journey and Hoping that you never ever reach your destination Mm. Because actually it's that journey It's that process And that is along the way You are experiencing so many things And connecting Connecting And if you just keep going Then that's what you're going to keep on doing When you reach the destination it's over At the end of the day Well isn't that what Maslow said Mm. In his hierarchy of needs When he was talking about people Who were on the journey to self-actualization Or even self-actualization He said self-actualization stresses more The personality than its achievements Uh Mm. Who you are may be more important than what you do Mm. Or it's sort of Yes, no, no, no I do think that's very important. I mean, we're speaking about the whole person as opposed to parts of that person and then lauding those parts and saying, well, that's, mm. you know. And, and, and so, again, coming back to the whole issue of success and loneliness, I think I want to put that to one side for the moment because I want to come back to the broader discussion around loneliness and, and just get into what's the South African situation because I've quoted the UK, Australia, Japan, Russia, you know, all over the place so-called maybe first world developed countries. So what's the situation in a developing country or a mixed country where we have aspects of developed and developing? And that's where I think SADAC comes into it because I'm, I was given information in another episode of the podcast which dealt with uh, uh, suicide and how the media handles suicide. And we were looking at some of the SADAC numbers in terms of people phoning into SADAC and the dramatic increase that there has been sort of comparing pre-COVID to mm. post-COVID and the number of calls per day that were suicide related and, and Franz Korb was on the, on the podcast and he was talking about one in four calls are suicide related. And so my question to myself was, well, what are the other three about? I was curious. And so you've been a counselor, telephonic. That's where you started out. You're an affiliate of SADEG. So, so what is the SADEG experience? Now, I posed the question to them in preparation for this and yes. I said, look, what, what are the South African stats? Yes. And they came back and said, we don't have any. Right. Because I think we are dealing with such a diverse society that is also, Characterized by the haves and the have nots and yes. I think that's, that's really an issue. So then I come down to, okay, are we just talking about a first world problem? Are we just talking about a, a, an urbanized societal problem versus rural? You know, where's the relevance for a South African society? And then you ask the question, which South African society mm. are you talking mm. about? Mm. Because 
yes, we can say that loneliness as a pandemic in itself yes. is, is pervasive and it's indiscriminate. But at the same time, we also then have to differentiate between your more westernized individualistic cultures yes. versus a spirit of Ubuntu that mm. you may find in the most impoverished areas, but there literally is a village to help raise you and support you on your journey of life. And I suppose it comes back to what we've been saying and what Dory was saying. It's this whole issue of connectedness. Mm. And I think we do live in an increasingly isolating urban environment. Mm. And so, you know, that for me is, 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 seems to be one of the critical answers in terms of the question, you know, why the first world? Why not the developing world? And at different levels of, 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 of society within South Africa, you might find different experiences mm-hmm. in terms of how people might even respond to the question about loneliness. Mm-hmm. I think also, I think that there's also a diffusion of responsibility in this right. country. You can, you can drive past, let's say, an accident scene on the way home and nobody stopped and you think, oh, that's fine. The next person will stop. Why should it be me? Yes. Mm-hmm. So we also, we protecting and guarding ourselves against exposure to trauma. Yet depriving maybe ourselves and somebody else. Well, you know, one of the problems, certainly as a medical doctor, is that if you stop at an accident scene and you intervene, you can, the and heaven forbid, yes, something yeah. goes wrong, there's yeah. liability. So yeah. suddenly you're like, well, I don't know if I want to get involved here. Yeah. So, you know, as a society, we also promote that disconnection. Mm-hmm. So even where I might have an obligation as a doctor to assist, you're kind of thinking to yourself, well, mm-hmm. hang on a sec. I'm not so sure that I'm prepared to mm-hmm. step across that line mm-hmm. under the circumstances, mm-hmm. which for me is very sad, mm-hmm. actually, because mm-hmm. I can remember back in the 80s, I was a, a houseman driving off to Baraguanath Hospital on the highway. There was an accident. I'd stop my car. I'd jump out, and I'd see what was going on. And you know, and if the first responders were there, I'd say, okay, cool. The guys are here. They'll take care of it. But I, I would stop. Mm-hmm. I'm not so sure. No, and I think it's exactly the situation. And certainly, is there a doctor in the house? It's like, hmm, mm, is mm, there? Mm. Do I want to identify as such? I don't think that it's only to do with no. sort of fear of litigation, which could be as well. I think it's also to do in this country with the, with fear of crime mm. ah, and yes. lack of trust. That's yes. I think that you might not always trust the scene, the, the scene, and you might feel conned. And I think that there's an elevated level of suspicion yeah. that has come from that kind of thing and isolation. I mean, I don't know. Well, let me think of it. Would I say to my kids, because they actually there have been occasions where, I mean, long ago, I'm more suspicious now where I've been conned with a sob story. Mm. You know, or a driver who's got pictures on the phone and shows you the most horrific things in the, and, and so there's just generally some, you spoke about paranoia. I don't know if it's as bad as being paranoid, but suspicion. Weariness. And lack of weariness. Weariness Weariness is it. So I think this whole issue of trust, connectedness, loneliness. So we're talking about societal issues that actually influence the willingness to connect with people Mm. because if you don't trust, sure as hell, Mm. you're not going Mm. there. But I think we've also been socialized to almost to to live in our heads as opposed to embodying experiences. Mm. And this place can also be quite dangerous because then you question somebody's need to connect. What's their motive? Mm. What are they going to get out of me? Think of an ulterior motive. Well, is that that a South African mentality? Because if somebody approaches you on the street, your first question is, what do you want? Mm. Mm. 
as opposed to what do you need? Mm. How can, can I support you? How can I support mm. you? How can I help you? Sure. I mm. think we've become very defensive in that mm. respect. And maybe I speak for myself, but I think that there's a certain level of weariness, and I'll come back to that word, based on experience, based on what we understand, and the, the, the sort of vulnerability of being exploited to mm. being exploited. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think that mm. as a society, we also contribute in our own way, but then we get into the issue of societal values. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's ultimately where we're going to come. But I just wanted to throw something into the mix just because I'd, I'd forgotten America because America also has a comment on this. And this comes from the former U.S. Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy. And he was talking about loneliness as a growing health epidemic. You used the word pandemic, but I think that uh, that's probably closer to the mark what you've said. And he was commenting in a Harvard Business Review essay, and he said – that social isolation is associated with a reduction in lifespan similar to that caused by smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, th- the risk of loneliness and social isolation can actually be equated to physical threat to the body. So we had a professor when, we were, when I was studying, and he used to speak about that sense of dis-ease right. that we all carry And that very often the mark of how lonely somebody is, is their relationship with physical things. Right. So is it, is it like their relationship with food? Is it their relationship with material possessions? Okay. Alcohol, other substances. What are they using to try and fill a void that can never actually be filled? Or can never be a substitute for real human authentic connection. Well, Leanne, it's like you can't get enough of what you don't really want. Yeah. And so you have to first, I mean, if you're thinking about all this, what are the interventions? I mean, do we have any, anything that we can say that can, can kind of address this? And I think the first thing is what you're saying is that people don't really know what they're hungry for. Mm-hmm. If you give someone a million apples, another one, another one, mm-hmm. and another one, That's either in the form of a substance, or another drink, or a material possession, or something else. But if 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 they want one orange, it's not going to fill the gap. No. So how do you give people tools and the and and permission to be able to accept that kind of need and understand that kind of need first? But within themselves. And I think that one of the hugest problems, I think, of, of any society is that we don't really listen. And sometimes we don't talk. Mm-hmm. You see, for example, mm-hmm. as you were speaking, Dory, I was thinking, so what do we do? We're having a conversation. Mm-hmm. How many conversations have you heard about loneliness? Because I, I, I haven't really heard too many. I mean, I've been reading about it, and it's something that I was obviously thinking about, so that's why I thought we should do an episode that deals with loneliness. Um, but I don't know how many conversations are taking place where people are really looking at it, and we're not looking to promote victimhood. Mm-mm. We're looking at a societal phenomenon which is not good for society. And in looking at that phenomenon, we're looking at social determinants of health, mental health, mm-hmm. physical well-being. So mm-hmm. it's not just mental health. It's physical mm-hmm. well-being. And we're having a conversation about our well-being, actually. Mm-hmm. I think that's what's important. Mm-hmm. you know. And I mean, in, in, in certainly in the UK, and I haven't seen it, but they've come up apparently with a loneliness strategy. So I don't know what that looks like. I couldn't access it. It must be out there somewhere. It's probably a white paper that's got to go through Parliament. Um, certainly in, in Australia, there's a, a lady called Michelle Lim, Dr. Michelle Lim from Monash University, and she's 
developed a campaign called the Ending Loneliness Together campaign. Mm. So she's looking to put something more practical in place. And if anybody's interested in that, they can go to the Sydney Morning Herald and they'll look it up um, from October 2022. So what she was really saying was something we'd said earlier. Being lonely is not abnormal. It's the persistence. Mm. You know, I think that's mm. really the issue. So there are things that are being developed across the globe, it seems to me, in terms of strategies, but we'll, we'll come to that. Something that I'm interested in is this whole Western urban culture, which seems to be promoting of the phenomenon that we are talking about. Not necessarily exclusively, but it seems that in general, there's a disconnect between cities and rural areas. The rural areas may be more traditional, more connected. Everybody knows each other. Mm-hmm. There's clans. There's, there's, there's kinship. There are communities. Whereas in the city, we operate more siloed, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. I think that that's absolutely right. I mean, you were talking about a spirit of Ubuntu. I think there is a generosity of spirit in her more that is almost unquestioned. This is how we are and how we make ourselves available to other people without shame, mm. without the same kind of shame or without the label of not being able to cope. It is more just, I think, communally accepted. Mm. But then there are other uh, situations where I think that image is quite important. Mm. And so especially in South Africa and so many of a certain of our cultures where if you feel that you haven't lived up Mm. or if you haven't met expectations, familial expectations, gender expectations and cultural expectations, then you're not quite acceptable, which Mm. would result in you isolating yourself. Mm. Well, I think there you're speaking to something that I kind of wanted to raise, but I'll bring it in now. And this is the idea of my life versus the curated Mm. lives of others on social media. I think that's a. He's <laughs> so dangerous. You know this this issue of, of of comparison is really problematic, and I think to some extent that might be speaking to what you you're saying, Dory. Where you know it's it's like, geez, I don't look like that. My life doesn't look like that. And then often you know you you're hearing that from your patients, and you're saying, but what do you really know about that other person's mm-hmm. life? It's a curated. Mm. Life, but yet it's very vivid, it's very real, and it's being in your face. It's yeah. in your face, it's mm-hmm. being pumped out there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're always going to come back in so many of these conversations to social media, where social media, as much as it's a useful tool, it's become much more than a tool. Mm-hmm. It's become a, almost a like a, a weapon mm-hmm. of mass destruction, mm-hmm. yeah. actually. Because we're technologically connected, but we are the most interpersonally disconnected we have ever been. And I think that's the issue, really. I think that's the issue, is that we're connected in ways which are not necessarily fulfilling or enriching. It's a different kind of connection. It's much more well, superficial. Well, if you look at, you know, this kind of emphasis on how many friends have you got. Yes. Right. Okay, I mean, they, I mean what do you likes. really call a friend? Yes. You know, right. Do you, how many of these so-called friends do you even know? Have yes. you ever met any of them? It's just mm. a matter of collecting them mm. and saying I've got so many, but the, the, it's so diluted yes. what the definition of a real friend is. Okay, but that's very you important. Know, that's, that's incredibly important mm. what you've said now. What does it mean if you are my friend? Mm. You know, I, I, I'm thinking back to a movie with Jim Carrey and Matthew Broderick, the cable guy, where Jim Carrey plays a sort of outlier of a person who's very lonely Mm. 
and disconnected from society. And Matthew Broderick says to him, listen, my friend, Mm -hmm. something along those lines. And the Jim Carrey character says, friend. And Mm -hmm. I thought, yes, what does it mean to be a friend? Mm -hmm. And I think that's the point. Mm -hmm. What is a Facebook friend? Mm -hmm. So what is friendship? Well, I think there's a big gap between a Facebook friend and what I would like to think the definition Mm -hmm. of a friend is someone who has your back. Yes. Someone who's interested in you. Someone you can Someone trust. Who, the trust part. Who you can that be comes vulnerable with. It, that you can mm. be vulnerable Who won't with. exploit you. No. Absolutely. And give and take. Correct. Or, you know, then, yes, give and take where there's some risk. Yeah. You know, and care. I mean, and maybe, yeah, I mean, I don't know, like maybe I also speak of like my age or the generation that I come from. Yes. But I've seen with patients as well, the way of like communicating with you now is they send you a WhatsApp or, yeah. an, or an SMS. And I think initially I battled with it because mm. I like to speak to people. I like to hear your voice. I like to like actually connect with you yes. in some form or another. And this seems so completely impersonal. Yes. But yet it's, it's protective for them. And that's There's become exposing. very, um, um, I mean, very much out there now. Like yeah. um, text, text. There's a term that was given for it where people will expose themselves initially more online without mm. sitting face to face with a person mm. than we ever would think. Yes. And there's been research on it because I was quite against that kind of, mm. of, of tech therapy, you yes. know, and there's, they're huge. It's huge in the world. Now. Well, I, th- uh, I think it, you know, if I look at it, I'm, I try to be objective. It could be an entree. But ultimately mm. what you need yeah, is, the, so. is the in-person because that's mm. what you really want. You know, some people just don't like talking on the phone. And, you know, sure. some some people are just averse to that. So a quick text message with the possibility of setting up an in-person get-together, okay. But where that's your sole source mm. of interpersonal communication, that's, I think, problematic. Well, some people would have no other source. That's also true. Like these companies like Talkspace, you know, in New York and other huge, huge companies where they, if you look at this country, could we – Reach out to people who are lonely, at least in some way, even if it's not the ideal way. You've just raised a very important point that allows me to bring in something which I think I was going to introduce just as an aside. Artificial intelligence mm-hmm. and chatbots. Because sure. I came across a, a, a report, which is in all these sort of news outlets, but I just took the one from the Jerusalem Post from early April, about a guy in Belgium who engaged in conversations with a chatbot over a six-week period and eventually ended up killing himself because the chatbot had said to him, well, have you ever thought of ending your life? And so I thought to myself, you know, this whole issue of loneliness and connection and this particular individual, and it's not clear whether they had pre-existing mental health issues before, felt that he could really connect with this bot and so he actually became obsessed. And so again, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that there wasn't a pre-existing mental health condition, but he was married. He had kids and the wife said, gosh, if he hadn't connected, and this is all around climate change, by the way, mm. where the bot suggested to him that, well, maybe you should sacrifice your life if you feel so strongly mm. about a threat to, mm. took it on, killed himself. Mm. And so I'm, and then I started sort of coming across this whole notion. And it's something that I'm going to deal with in more detail in a, in a future episode. The use of these chatbots and artificial intelligence as therapeutic tools 
as screening instruments and where the ethics are and where it takes us. And these are real concerns that I have actually as a psychiatrist because psychiatrist, psychologist, social worker, any of the mental health professionals, these are very intimate mm-hmm. personal experiences. Mm-hmm. And now we are kind of surrendering it potentially, if we're not careful, to artificial mm-hmm. intelligence. Quantitative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which can be very mm-hmm. uh, seductive mm-hmm. in terms of how they bring you in, mm-hmm. how they read you, which is kind of scary because I'm almost talking about AI as if it's a person. And that's the scary part. Mm. And so here we have this, and I thought, wow, this Mm. is concerning to me. But I can see where loneliness can lead to that Mm. and what else might it lead Mm. to. So I'm just putting it out Mm. there. What are your thoughts? Sure. Go ahead, Leanne. No, I mean, I'm just thinking about almost like the the concept of narcissism, you know, this belief that you can only also be understood by similar high-status individuals. And that that in itself can also be an incredibly lonely place to be, an incredibly vulnerable place to be. Yes. And so what's rated more highly than AR? Yes, and I think that we need to be very careful how we think about AI Mm. and the fact that we've created it and therefore we should control it. And it should serve our interests versus controlling our interests. Mm. And I think these are some of the conversations that I'm seeing. And and there was all this sort of hype about AI and then – Within a period of a week or two weeks, everybody started wanting to put the brakes on once all this chat GPT came mm-hmm. out and then version four emerged mm-hmm. and it's just getting smarter and cleverer, et cetera, et cetera. And people began to realize, hang on a sec, we've got to put the brakes on here. And there are certain governments calling for closing it down, mm-hmm. actually. Mm-hmm. Well, you see, I think that that's the, where you kind of you throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think people got very excited about it. In my, I absolutely agree with everything you said. I'm as nervous as anything. I think what you said about narcissists and valuing certain characteristics need to be challenged by those people talking to ordinary people who can under, or less, you know, people that, 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 who can understand them and them being able to see the power of being heard. You spoke about Mm. deep hearing, Mm. the power of understanding of feeling, the power of being able to say, I can see that you are. Or I imagine that this is really difficult for you. Those kind of things I think aren't, will not be captured properly Mm-mm. by quantitative algorithms and data. And that's a human reaction. And even when you see people, you know, making up and breaking up quickly on a telephone or saying, I'm sorry, you know, it was an interesting experience. I, I saw my daughter. Texting to me not to say that that's unusual. I said, what are you doing? She said, oh, well, it's the Day of Atonement, and I'm saying I'm sorry if I've hurt someone to every single person on my list. <laughs> and I thought to myself, <laughs> well, you know, shouldn't you have to look into someone's eyes sure. and really think about what yeah. you've done? And it's not meant to be so easy. And then someone else said to me, yes, but look at the reach. <laughs> that she's got all the people. But reach versus so impact. You see, so, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. So reach then it's, versus impact. So then yeah. it's about convenience. Mm. Yeah. And the truth of the matter is that kind of atonement mm. is hard. And I can imagine, I'm, I'm thinking about the 12 steps, AA, where you have to make good. You're going to do it mm. via a text message. Everybody you've ever <laughs> offended, is that how it's going to work? I don't, yeah, think, that's, I don't yeah. think that that's the intention. No, not at all. But I came across an interesting piece which kind of spoke almost as a proxy for loneliness in the cities. And again, this is, this is American. And it's the tragedy, that's the headline, the growing tragedy of unclaimed bodies. 
So these are people who have been abandoned and bodies that are unclaimed. And they're talking about something as high as 2 to 3% of the deceased in cities like Los Angeles. And I think that that's actually quite profound because I've never really thought about unclaimed bodies. But obviously, as I was thinking about loneliness and thinking about the podcast, and I came across the article and I thought, Hang on a sec, that's, that's pretty profound. Mm, what does that say? You know, it's mm. almost like a fundamental disrespect for the life that was lived, good mm. or bad, but there's this loss of humanity. We just don't bother. Mm. But also it speaks to the idea of survival of the fittest. In a sense, I suppose. I, mean, I remember, you know, in between my studies, living in London for a few months and right. walking along the street one day and, you know, you see homeless people and they're talking to themselves and actually realizing that I was just a number, that yes. I could drop dead there and then. And who would actually know? You know, what's interesting about that story is that uh, I did national service and I encountered somebody who was about to go in at the same time as me who had been a conscientious object and had left the country but had come back to do national service. And they said virtually exactly what you're saying. They said, you know, I was walking around London and I suddenly thought to myself, it's not my place. Mm -hmm. That's not my school. These are not my shops. These are not not my my people. people. Exactly. Where do I fit in? Jeez. And they took a very big decision, and I was kind of shocked to see them. And and, and, and when they – because I said, what the hell are you doing? And when it was explained, I thought, okay, it's that sense of belonging. Mm-hmm. It's that sense of connection once again. That, mm. I think, is the biggest reason, if ever there was a reason that people feel confident enough to talk about. That is the biggest reason why people often – why people make the decision against other arts – of of crime and load shedding and opportunity yeah. all of that it's it's a transcendental connectedness mm. yes. that says i've got there's a past there's a present there's a future there's someone who says do you remember there's someone who said jeez i used to know your family correct mm. there's a green grocer all around the mm. corner you know who's Whose grandfather you used to know, there's a sense of, of connection and a familiarity, whereas, as you say, you are really just a number. number. And that is hard. And that's why I think that these things, to talk about any combating of it, re- groups, whether they're religious, mm. you know, belonging to a religious group, whether it's a gender group, like a woman's group, sure. whether it's an interest group, yeah. like we all, we've got a certain hobby. Even things like sports, where I think that what happens with this male bonding is an expression of connection and identity that is legitimized because we can all be so excited that our team scored the goal and it gives us permission to hug each other. Sure. In a way that we wouldn't usually before. But it's an expression of connection and identity, which I think everybody Wants to have. But I think in your description, Lee, and I'm going to go back to the definition of uh, Cacioppa and Cacioppa, a unique condition where an individual perceives him or herself to be socially isolated even when among people. And this is exactly what you've described. It's that sense of alienation. I don't belong here, you know, and and no one gives a damn for me. It's not like you walk into a restaurant and say, hey, geez, look, there's so-and-so. I haven't seen you for 20 years. How's it going? That you matter. That's it. And there's that familiarity. And, um, and, and you have an encounter like that and you suddenly realize that's why I'm here. Mm-hmm. And I often wonder with Emmy Grays how they experience 
their country of, of, of choice, which may not necessarily be their first choice because they might not necessarily have wanted to leave, but they feel compelled to. And I often wonder how they acculturate mm. and fit in and, and, and become because you can't. You cannot make up 30 or 40 so years of, 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 of experience. And I wonder how m- much loneliness there is mm. in the expatriate mm. South African community. Just a question. I don't know. But, you know, Dory, you were, you were talking about religious groups and, and, and this, this article on, on unclaimed bodies. They were looking at less religion, smaller families, transient lifestyles. Mm. So they were identifying some of the issues which they thought potentially contributed to that. And, and, and this speaks very much to the urban lifestyle mm. and the movement and the disconnection mm. from, from, from people. So there was another article that, that was sent to me by a, a good friend, and I'll mention his name, David Webb. He's not a stranger mm. to this podcast. And he made me aware of an article whose title is, well, it's got the title deaths of, or the phrase deaths of despair. In the title, and they were looking at rising mortality rates in America. And this is fascinating, actually, to see how the mortality rates are increasing. And I think that it's, it's, it's not just a function, and the deaths of despair were linked to substance abuse and suicide, but also connected to obesity, cardiovascular disease, mm-hmm. endocrine problems. And they were looking at some of the factors which, 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 which kind of contributed. And obviously we were looking at this modern, Isolating lifestyle mm-hmm. where everything is highly individualistic. And I think that this is something which we can't not talk about. It's as if society is kind of just moving forward. We're being propelled into this state. We need to put the brakes on, mm-hmm. I think. And I'm just one person. But I think when you speak to people generally, you might feel that there is a certain sympathy with that understanding that what is happening to society? Where are we actually going? And when I come across an article like this, talking about deaths of despair, you kind of sit down and say, okay, what is going on with society? Actually, but now they're looking at America and they're comparing America to European countries where you have paid leave. To be with your family. You know, America is, is, is a very tough country. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was traveling there, I was traveling extensively, and people would say to me, how do you get so much time off? We get two weeks, and don't take mm-hmm. them consecutively. Mm-hmm. You know, there was the sense, so there was no sense of, of leisure and activities which bond and bind. And I promote, think, promote collective well-being. Mm-hmm. Correct. Mm. And so when you look at, there's another thing called the Blue Zones Project, which looks at lifestyle factors common to geographic areas with the greatest longevity. And there, membership of a faith-based community, putting family first, keeping aging parents nearby. Mm. And I think the abandonment of the aged is an issue, actually, which we Mm. need to really look at. Having a life partner, investment in children with time and love and a healthy social network. So these are elements of a healthier life. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important that we put these things on the table because they, they, they might seem trite and obvious, but okay, what are you doing about mm-hmm. it? Sorry? Well, I think that that's why we have got all these new ministers of loneliness that have been arising. I think there is more realization, hopefully, hopefully realization of us. If you talk about the deaths of despair, almost all of them in some way I think can be related to social isolation or shame in being able to reach out and stigma. talk or not be the mm. stigma. Stigma. stigma, absolutely. So, you know, I think that they all can be related to that. And um, yet, I mean, we're carrying on on this treadmill, but also – I have never had so many requests in groups that I work with 
um, and and in individuals of men who want to address the so-called, I don't even really like the term, work-life balance. No, no, no. They want is, to be more exist. involved in families. <laughs> yes. They want to practice more self-compassion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They want to look at the fact that this isn't as, you know, I think there is sort of – in. Coming into it, Leanne, I know what you think, a little bit more permission to not only identify yourself by what, by your worthiness related to competence. Yes. More related to other things as well. To connection. To connection. So I think that there is an emerging ability to connect with your inner dissatisfaction. And you can actually look at it honestly and say, hmm. I need to make some changes. Mm. And if it means I need to sacrifice, and I'm not even going to – maybe sacrifice is the wrong word. I need to shift emphasis in terms of what I want to do and where I want to be. And I think we also live in a culture that puts a, a lot of store on resilience, you know. And even the concept mm. of self-help, you know, you have to help yourself. You've got to be resilient. Yeah. Pull up your socks. Pull up, Pull up your socks. Up your socks. Exactly. So, so Bounce back. So we're sending a lot yeah. of messages in terms of how you need to be and Shove how you have to be. Shove it under your emotional carpet mm. such Correct. that it looks like the Alps after a while. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. But then we come back to the issue of, of, of stigma ultimately. So listen, we're coming to the end. Of our time, and I'm not. I'm, I'm, there were many more things that we could have spoken about, and that I would have liked to talk about. So, I, I obviously want to thank Dory and Leanne for 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 making the time to to join us for a conversation on an issue which may not be front of mind for many, but could be closer than you think. And so, in closing, a few lines from a classic song from the 1960s, 1966 to be precise, and the song is Eleanor Rigby. The album is Revolver, the band The Beatles, who sang the following lines of the chorus, although the verses are quite profound and moving. All the lonely people, where do they all come from? All the lonely people, where do they all belong? Questions to ponder. This has been Beyond Madness in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave, inspiring communities one pharmacy at a time. Remember, there is no health without mental health, and until next time, take care.